Drive into left center, and what a play made by the rookie Brian O'Grady. Pitch. Oh, into right field. Brian O'Grady, first big league home run. Fly ball, center field struck well. Marisnik going back at the wall. Gone! Welcome back, Brian O'Grady. And welcome inside episode number 49 of Breaking Bats, presented by Not For Long Media. My name is Justin Ayers, and this week it is the best of 2022. So many great memories and moments from this year on the podcast. It's crazy to think, like, we started this back in February, Brian and I. We worked through a 13-hour time difference with him playing in Japan this past season, and we still got to interview some of the most incredible guests, from players to broadcasters to media members. It's just been so much fun every single week doing this. Uh, but for this best of, we, we picked a few of our favorite guest moments. Before we get to that, though, we do have a few ads to tell you guys about. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Psalm Sleep. Are you having trouble getting enough sleep at night? Because Psalm Sleep has you covered. The scientifically advanced Psalm Snack has ingredients that are naturally found in your body, like GABA, magnesium, and melatonin. Sleep is the best form of recovery, and it has helped people everywhere take their game to the next level. All you have to do is drink one serving 30 minutes before bed, and your body will naturally calm itself down. Uh, wake up feeling refreshed and ready to conquer your day with Psalm Sleep. Go to GetSom.com, click Shop, and enter the code BATS, B-A-T-S, at checkout for 10% off of your entire order. This episode is also brought to you by the official sponsor of Not For Long Media and the Breaking Bats podcast, the Original Fudge Kitchen. The Original Fudge Kitchen is a staple of the Jersey Shore with six locations in Cape May, Wildwood, North Wildwood, Stone Harbor, and Ocean City. They make all of their fudge in-store, guaranteeing a delicious product, so stop by and let them know that Not For Long Media and Breaking Bats sent you. All right, like I said, best of 2022 this week, we picked 18. I'm looking at the list I have written down here, 18 guest moments. I'm going to run through the, I'm going to do the rundown right now for you guys, and then just sit back and enjoy, uh, which probably going to be like an hour and a half of, of just great, great content. So first up, we have Ben and Woods telling how they met Brian back in San Diego. That was so much fun. Number two, we have Joe Musgrove telling the story of his no hitter and how he held his pee after drinking 12 bottles of water. Next, we have Jared Carabas telling about his love-hate relationship with the New York Yankees and their fan base. Then Eric Hosmer telling about winning the Kansas City Royals a World Series championship back in 2015. Then we have our guy Adam Jones telling about, uh, you know, getting, getting really candid uh, about his time in Baltimore and some of the, the offseason stuff back then. Next, we have Frank Schwindel telling about his magical 2021 season with the Chicago Cubs taking over for Anthony Rizzo. Then we have Adam Frazier telling about the brawls that the Pirates always had. Uh, next, we have Matt Strom. He's going to be telling a story about uh, his time going from Juco to the show. Next up, we have Dietrich Enns, Brian's teammate over on the St. Thomas Cebu Lions this past season. He's going to tell all about playing in Japan and the differences between the U.S. and the Japanese game. Then we have our guy Josh Lowe telling about the 2020 Tampa Bay Rays alternate training site. Then Will Crow from the Pirates telling about the haunted Fister Hotel in Milwaukee. Then Mickey Janis, the knuckleballer, tells all about how he got started throwing that pitch. Next up, we have Matt Adams. Matt Adams is going to be telling about the 2019 World Series run with the Nationals and what it was like to win the ring. Then we have multi-sport athlete Josh Booty. A very, very funny story about how Kevin Millar lost his World Series ring. Then we have TJ Friedel talking about going, uh, being undrafted and, and just the whole story about how, you know, back at uh, University of Nevada, nobody realized he was eligible for the draft until after the draft. Then we have Ryan Ripkin telling a story about, you know, growing up in the spotlight and, and having his famous father. And last but not least, we have Robert Hassel III 
breaking down his approach at the plate. Very, very cool. So without further ado, here is the best of 2022. Enjoy. How we met, basically. Do you guys want to tell a story? You want me? You want the very well, last story? I want. I will tell the story from our perspective, but I yes, kind of want to yes. hear it from your perspective because um, obviously it was the off season before last year, and we're doing the show from the Corona Cave, which is my parents' guest house, and we're waiting <laughs> on the Padres to you know make some moves. AJ Preller's a wheeler and dealer in the off season. We're sitting there. It's it's December. It's almost Christmas, and nothing's really happened, and so we're just dying. Something. Let, let's see a transaction. And all of a sudden, boom, hits the transaction wire that the Padres have signed outfielder Brian O'Grady. And we both kind of go, who? who? Who the fuck is that guy? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll, I, I'll never forget it. I, I just, I can remember. It's one of those days where like, it's so stuck in my memory. I read it and I go, Brian, okay. So the I go, and I remember, I think the quote was, I'm like, well, ladies and gentlemen, the first domino has fallen. <laughs> the Padres are on the board, and they have signed maybe from Dublin, Ireland. It looks like Brian O'Grady. I'm like, who's this guy? Men's like it looks looks it's like a, he played for the Reds. I'm going like, is, the this, is this a major league deal? Is this a minor league deal? Is this a spring training invite? What's going on here? Yeah. So <laughs> it was a major league deal, and 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 I just remember going. Okay, Brian O'Grady. And then I just went into the worst Irish accent you've ever heard. Like, top of the morning. So happy to be here. And so we riffed with it. We had some fun. And people loved it. Uh, they really had fun with it because, you know, they, they were tweeting about it. And then somebody found you on Twitter, tagged you in it. And that's when I went, oh, shit. Sometimes bits go too far. Now, you never know how someone's going to take something, right? And especially like we've been around enough big leaguers to know that like there's certain things you talk about and there's certain things you don't, there's questions that you want to avoid. Um, but you were a guy that got it immediately. And for us, when you got it, cause I think your first response back was, Oh, I got to hear this accent. And we're like, I'm like, Oh God, he just responded. Holy shit. Holy shit. Holy shit. Cause you're in a room. And you got a mic in front of you, but you're talking to your buddy. You forget that other people are listening. And yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've driven home and went, did I? Oh, I did. Oh, man, I hope they don't hear that, right? Like, it happens all the time. I think the, the worry is that you're going to think we were making fun of you yeah. or something or belittling you or it wasn't taken in the spirit that it was intended. And the last thing we want is to, you know, offend a, a new Padre and get off yeah. on the wrong foot. So. I think that's where kind of the nervousness comes in when we, when we get a bit going. We don't know how you're going to react. Yeah, that's that's definitely uh, something you would be worried about. You don't want to piss anybody off or somebody you don't even know or right. whatever. But for me, I thought it was hilarious. So I, from my perspective, that's pretty accurate from from my perspective. Wait, too. What were you thinking? Like, who are these guys? The like, what's these guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, click on us or what? What happened? <laughs> For me, it started back in the off season when I, like you said, when they, when they signed me and it was, it pops up as a major league deal, which technically, yes, it's a major league deal. It's a split contract. I make so a certain amount in triple a certain amount in the major leagues, but it puts me on the 40 man roster. So it, that's what it's called. And people had the same, same exact reaction. Like who the, who the fuck is Brian O'Grady? And 
I, I get that, you know, unless you're a pretty hardcore baseball fan, you probably, or a Reds slash Rays fan, you probably didn't know who I was at that point. San Diego would have no reason to know who I am. And somehow on Twitter, people were kind of not talking shit, but they were kind of talking shit about, about me and whatever. And I responded to somebody. And from then, and we just, you know, had a back and forth and I was just kind of explaining what was happening, why I sucked for a few years in minor leagues and what I changed. And they really, people, the Padres fan, uh, they enjoyed it. So that was kind of my start with them there. Fast forward spring training, that's happening. Was that, that was spring training, right? Or was it before spring training? And I just saw it like it was spring training, I think. No, it, it was fairly soon. It was fairly soon after we did the bit that somebody Paulie posted. Someone it, did it. And okay. then you you responded on Twitter, but I think the first time it was Peoria. Yeah, he was in Peoria when he was like, oh, I can't wait to hear this accent. Oh yeah, yeah, you were in Peoria. What's up, Polly? <laughs> Polly's on the bat. Yeah, he's he's working on the show already. But yeah, it was okay. in, in Peoria, and I'm like, oh my God, he's tweeting at us from Peoria. <laughs> Oh we couldn't God. go because of COVID. You know, usually yeah, 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 we would have been there. first. It was all weird. Eat all the guys, but COVID, they couldn't, they wouldn't let us go. So it was, it was different than usual. So we're, yeah, like we're not able to actually talk to you in person, like we might have been able to, and just like make sure you understood, you know, what's going on here and who we are. So that added, I think, to a little bit of the like nervousness about it. Well, and then when we had yawn, you know, the best, it was one of the best intros ever because we kind of <laughs> built it up for a couple of months and. I you know open, you open right off the shoot with top of the morning. It's Brian O'Grady. Didn't we do it on St. Like wait for St. Patrick's yeah. day to do yes. it? Yeah. It was yeah. during spring training. Yeah. So yeah. It's the best dude. And, and so you know, <laughs> it's just one of those funny things where like, you know, you're talking about people talking shit online and it, it happens. And the funny thing is sometimes is sometimes you respond and they'll go, Oh shit. I didn't know you were going to respond. Right. And, mm, yep. and they're like, Hey, cool, man, pulling for you. And that's kind of what yeah. happened to you. Uh, I can remember some of that discourse going back and forth, but you know, for us in the morning, like it's kind of our mantra, try to make people laugh. And if a dumb Irish accent, which again, you're from Philly, you're not from <laughs> Ireland, uh, you know, like who cares? And, but there, I think there would be players that would take it the wrong way, but you didn't. And as soon as we knew that you got it where I'm like, this is our guy for sure. And we're your guys and we're going to have your back and no root doubt. for you. And, I, th- I thought it was rad, like, at Petco when you did get called up a couple of times. And, I mean, people were going ape shit, like, in the stands and stuff. And it was awesome. Like, I remember, like, running to my TV, like, let's go. And it sucked <laughs> because it seemed like they're like, hey, uh, BOG's back up. I'm like, great. Give this dude a start. Let him get four ABs. Not come in in the ninth, down three off of, you know, guy throwing 98 from the left side i'm like give the dude a start like let him get some ab's under his belt and see what you could do because you had the bomb which was like the greatest moment i was napping i fell asleep when it happened i woke up and my twitter was like da, 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 da. blown up i'm like fuck and i, I went around <laughs> it and i'm just like yeah it was so it was so great so just like it's easy to root for Manny. It's easy to root for Tatis. It's easy to root for those guys, right? Like, I like the guy that, you know, has had to work his balls off. Uh, and, and again, you got it uh, out of the shoot. And that meant a lot to us. And we have had, you know, I, I like to say it's been mutually beneficial. Yeah. Yeah.
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was one of the most dominant pitching performances I've ever seen, but I would argue that there was something even more impressive about that night. Is it true that you drank like 12 bottles of water and you didn't pee the entire time? <laughs> did, did I read that right? Yeah, dude. My brother calls it the no pisser. Like, <laughs> like, like that should be a greater achievement that you fucking drank that much. Um, dude, I'm not, I'm not superstitious at all, but for whatever reason that night, I was like following all the rules that you need to follow. So I wasn't breaking anything. I was just um staying consistent i've all i always drink a ton of water when i start i usually go through like yeah, a bottle every half inning so um yeah i'd never gotten that deep into a game so i never had that much in my system but i was fucking i was just rolling did it get hard as the, as the innings as you know as time went on and you're, you're inching closer to this milestone did you ever like waver at any point did you get close to going up taking Girl, yeah. like, what was the dynamic there yeah the bottom <laughs> of the eighth the bottom of the eighth after i got the last out or what would have been the top the top of the eighth no bottom of the eighth um I came in the dugout and I'm sitting there and like just mental broke for a minute and I was like started thinking about the fact that I really had to pee and then I was like damn what if I get out there and I do food I do fucking you know throw this no hitter and I get mobbed I was like I'm if somebody like squeezing me in their punch I'm probably gonna piss my fucking pants on the mound like <laughs> so that was the first time I like really seriously thought about it. and I'm like what the fuck am I thinking about like just try to get that back out of my head and, and get back <laughs> on baseball but um yeah I was it wasn't overbearingly bad, but I was like, damn, if, if I get super pumped here, like I'm getting squeezed and like crazy, I'm going to piss myself. What's, what's a better feeling though, pitching a no hitter or that first piss after you drank a dozen bottles of water? <laughs> oh dude, the no hitter for sure. I don't even remember okay. when okay. I pissed or how that I pissed. Like after that moment, I was so excited because I had to stay out there and do like an interview and oh shit, do an interview and like talk to a bunch of different people and shit. So I was out there for like another 15, 20 minutes after the game. Um, but yeah, that urge went, went away as soon as that thing was finished. Yeah. The point about the Yankee fans too, they, they're, they're evolving. They're evolving to where, um, at first they weren't in on the joke and it would drive them insane. But now I'm not saying that they're all the way in on the joke, but they're to the point where they know that it's tongue in cheek, but they still can't prevent themselves from getting upset anyway which is so it's the best of both worlds so like i i at least have the out where it's like you know that i'm joking but i'm still making you mad dude I, it cracks me up because I'm, I, I'm from philly so naturally we we i grew up not liking new york sports teams um if the yankees wanted to pay me a lot of money to play for them i would gladly do that mm. but until that time comes i i enjoy seeing the uh the hatred and all that stuff that that goes on, especially I went to Rutgers, which was in Jersey. So I was, mm -hmm. you know, split between the two. So I enjoy it, especially your tweets. Um, you know, when you're tweeting, high, when you're tweeting highlights of the games that go on and it's like fucking Garrett Cole, whatever, uh, striking somebody out and he's giving up just like a nuke or yeah. it's like ju judge with an unbelievable catch. And he's like standing watching a ball go into the stand. Right. I think that shit is so funny. I think I think those two dudes specifically do not have a sense of humor about it. Like there's some dudes on the Yankees that like I'm friends with some guys on the Yankees yeah. and they think it's funny. I think those two guys specifically, Garrett Cole and Aaron Judge, do not think that it's funny. I was standing so I, I was at I was on the field at the All-Star game in Denver back in July. And yeah. was three feet away from both of them. Nothing wouldn't even, they were just like, wouldn't even look at me. And I'm like, all right, dude, like I'm not, but then that's when that story came out like a few weeks later, uh, like 
JD Martinez was mic'd up and he was telling the story about how like Garrett Cole came off the bus. And I think it was like him, Rafi and Xander, like they said hi to him and he just like kept walking straight. So yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think with, with those two guys, if you leaned into it, people like they're not, they're not not engaging with me because they're like, we want to protect the sanctity of the Red Sox Yankees rivalry. I think that they're just not engaging with me because they're sensitive. If, if you wanted to lean into it, it would be so like people would have so much respect for them if they leaned into it or even gave me shit back. Then like that's yeah, that that's what they should be doing, but they're not. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know either of those guys personally. never met either of them. So I can't, you know, they might be great. And they are. So uh, judge is a friend of a friend. Like I know someone that like knew him before he got drafted. They're like, yeah, he's like, he's a fun guy. He's funny. Like we love hanging out with him. Great guy. And I'm like, I'm not saying he's not a great guy. I'm just saying his sense of humor is probably not that great. If you can't, (laughs) if you can't laugh at yourself, if you can't lean into it with the dude that's just wearing you out every single night for years. And I don't know, like, I'm not going to like toot my own horn here, but I don't know that there's anyone with a bigger audience who rides him harder than me. I don't think that that person exists. So if you were, if you were him, clap back like it's not like there's no way that he doesn't know because like i know the circles that he runs in and like the friends that he has like that's where the players see stuff and i'm sure you can speak to this as well but the players find out about people chirping them on twitter because their friends or their family will see it and text it to them it's not that like guys like aaron judge are sitting there searching his name on twitter and reading through everything that everyone's saying it'll be like his friends will be like yeah this dude's clowning you again like that that's how they find out about that stuff. It's not like he doesn't know. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe someday he'll lean into it. That would be, you're right. It would be fucking hilarious. If you did, yeah. everyone would think that that would be great. You know, yeah. I don't know. I feel like sometimes dude, dudes who are like big time or whatever, or like they try to stay away from that. Cause they think all these other people are going to be, or if they like suck afterwards that people are going to talk shit and be like, well, he was doing this on Twitter and now he's over his last 20, like just fucking worry about your job and right. all that stupid shit. But I, you know, and for me personally, I'm obviously, like I said, not nearly as big as those dudes, but I've found it is for sure better to lean into that stuff and mess with fans, talk shit with them. And they love, they love you. If you do that instead of, they might heckle you, but then it turns into like good fun. It's right. not like we don't fucking like you. You stink. It's it's joking about whatever it is. Like at the end of the day, I am a baseball fan who somehow infiltrated the mainstream media. So, and I'm very open about, I have my stable of guys. And if you're not in that stable, you're just not protected. So like Luke Voigt, he's one of my guys. Gio Urshela, he's one of my guys. They They play for the Yankees. I won't say a bad word about either one of them. I'll, I'll like, every time that Luke Voigt tweets a home run, like I, I'll tweet his home runs. <laughs> I'll tweet him out. And then the Yankee fans will be like, I was waiting for it to get caught. And I'm like, I like Luke Voigt. If Aaron judge just leaned into it, he'd be one of my guys. And I would never say a bad word about him ever again. I can be bought. I can 1000% be bought. If Aaron judge was like, you know what? I love this guy. He's funny. I like him. Be like, boom. If he came on the podcast, Next thing you know, I'm tweeting every single air. I'm taking out because I'm a stat geek at heart. So my favorite thing about baseball statistics is that 
there's just so many ways that you can manipulate them to make your favorite players look good. And the ones that you don't like look bad. I love doing that shit. It's awesome. I would, if, if Aaron judge wanted to join me, we, if we could join forces together, I would be tweeting all the most ridiculous Aaron judge statistics that people didn't even realize how good he was on a nightly basis. And who knows? I mean, like I may even endear myself to the Yankee fan base because that's their guy. What's that feeling like when you when you when you guys won? You're just floating, man. Like you you literally are just floating the whole time. Like it's a good like week, week and a half where you know you go from going to New York, we win, we go to the hotel, we get a little, you know, banquet room in there, hang out all night. The bus is at seven the next day, you know, we're all going back to the room, throwing some clothes on. Uh, throw some stuff in a suitcase or whatever we get to the bus and like I like go to lean my head back to like get a little nap before the plane and Johnny Gomes just comes up and he's like champs don't sleep and he hands me two beers and I'm like all right I guess we ain't sleeping today you know then we're on the plane like we're on the plane we're playing cars doing our normal thing Ned comes to the back of the plane and Obama was the president at the time and he's like hey guys and he has his phone on speaker and he's like Obama wants to say congratulations and like, it's like Obama and he's like, hey, you know, congratulations to the Kansas City Royals. And we're just like, what is happening, dude? Like, what is happening right now? So it's a good week and a half, two weeks of like just floating and not not really understanding where you're at. So dude, that I is, back, I, and I've been on both ends, buddy. I, I can tell you, I can tell you, I can tell you what it feels like to lose one of them things too. That ain't fun either. It's so funny. So when, when did the tonight show appearance come, come into play? Cause I went back on YouTube and watched that. It was, uh, it was, it was something they brought out like fake Brett Saberhagen and real Brett Saberhagen. Uh, what, yeah. what, was, what was your, what was your tonight show experience? Like tonight show experience. So that was, we literally just get off the float and just get off the plane. So this is how crazy it is too, because we're just getting off the float in the parade in Kansas city. And our PR guy comes up to us and he's like, all right, he's like, we got Jimmy Kimmel in New York and Jimmy Fallon in, uh, in California. Who wants to do what? And Moose is like, well, I live in California, so I'll just go do Kimmel. And I'm on the East Coast, so I'll just go do uh, this guy. And we're like, oh, my God. Like, what is going on? So, like, it literally just felt like, like the Royals just took over the world for, like, three or four days, man. It was crazy. I, I think back to the 2014 offseason where you guys are coming off the ALCS and you have all this momentum yeah. and then all these free agents like Marcakis and Miller and Cruz, Cruz. They, they let them go in free agency. What were the yeah. conversations like in that offseason, like behind the scenes? Like I, I remember you trying to lobby for Marcakis especially, but can you take me back to that offseason, just all what, what took place from your perspective? Well, I think that those I think that was the, those years were our years to those were our years to do it, to do it. 14 was our year. And it sucked because we had three big ass injuries: Machado, uh, Davis suspension, no, Machado, Davis suspension, and then um, uh, Weeders. So we had three big guys gone. Eh, that's no excuse. It is what it is. Royals were fantastic too, um, but it just—I don't know. You know what I mean, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of the proper way to say it. You just gotta. You just gotta go out. Like, I don't know. You just gotta not be afraid. Like. So I'm trying to like really word it the correct way and re-ask the question so I can, you know, rethink it. No, it's just like the behind the scenes aspects of right. like, you, like I said, you guys had all this momentum. You're, you're a, a series away from going to the world series, which for Baltimore is yep. unheard of. 
Um, and then to have all these key pieces let go in free agency with the organization right. seemingly unwilling to, to fork over the money for them. Like, was, was that hard in that off season? And did you kind of lobby for anybody, especially? Okay. So with that, we knew Miller was gone. He's going to get, he's a reliever. They're not paying, the Warriors ain't paying $9 million for a reliever. That is, they ain't doing it. That, that free agent reliever. Now, if you did it through arbitration, like Britain started to make, Jim Johnson started to make money. But you see, once they started to make money, at the back end, they started to trade him. Cruz and Marquecas are the interesting cases because I just think the medicals, they went so hard on the medical that they went on that only. Both of their medicals said year four of a contract potential, they both won't be of value. Okay. I understand that as you know, you got, you got Marquecas being 34. I mean, he was, Marquecas was 33, 32. Yeah. Going, you know, just getting older. I get it. I get it. I get it. Marquecas in his fourth year was an all-star. Is one of his career best years of his career. Uh, won a third go glove as a 36 year old, year four of the contract. Um, Nelson Cruz went only one year he had under 40 in a hundred, one, only one year he had under 40 in those four years in Seattle. He went 39 was one year. Who got this wrong? Because you got guys that have proven over their career to be healthy. I think that's when you prove guys to be healthy, health and playing is something that you just have to value more. They don't value. I remember when I was a free agent, they were saying, well, you, it hurt me in free agency because I played so much. So because I posted, I, I got traded. Of course, I get it. You know, you play, you play, I played 1,499 games in 10 years. That will, that's a lot of trade. That was the number one player games played. And in center field, it's a lot of trade. But you mean to tell me that, like, that's not valued? You can count on me. There's a lot of players you can't count on that got long-term deals that year. And I'm like, well, I mean, you can count on me. It's been very proven. You can 100% count on me. And, you know, sometimes it, it went to the wayside. So, you know, you got to bite the bullet sometimes. <laughs> the medical aspect, too, because you're right, the, the Orioles medical team always had these offseason things like Grant Balfour and Tyler Colvin and Dexter Fowler. Yep. Like these, They would get so close, and then the medicals would come back, and they just wouldn't sign them. Like did any of exactly. that? Like, but then, impact? but then you get Kobe. Yeah. But then you sign Kobe Rasmus like that. I'm like, and yeah. I love Kobe too. Kobe was a great guy. You know, he battled his own uh, his own things. But he, when he was there, dude was awesome. Played hard. Played his ass. Funny as hell. So, uh, but I'm just saying, it's like, why do certain cases work and certain ones don't? And you know, like again, that's why I think as I get older, you know, I want to be on the front office side so that I can understand why and how they think. Because when you're a player, you think one way. I want to play. I, you know, I'm, I just want to play and perform, make it play, win, make as much money as I can. Like our mindset is different. The front office, they're not thinking about today. They're thinking about like months, years down the road. Everything is a process on the front office side. So that's why I say like, oh, we're in a, when they use the term, um, uh, um, let's stick with the process or rebuild. That's mean you have four years of ass and then hopefully they get a little bit better. Hopefully. You know what I mean? Because again, you got guys that are going to start making more money and guys, you know, like again, Mancini is going to be in the free agent. He's going to be free agent this year. Can you resign him? How much money is he going You haven't tried to lock him up already. And I think they should have already tried, but why would you when you got Mountcastle behind him? You know what I mean? Like, so, but that's a good problem to have. And our years when we were good, we had good problems. We had too many good guys. And that's always a, that's always a good problem to have is when you, when you, you know, when you have multiple options, it's always a really good option. Uh, one more uh, 
like Orioles question. Um, would you ever voice your concerns to like Buck in the hopes that he would run it up the flagpole to, to front office or like, you know, especially going back to like, you know, got certain guys, you think guys would be a great fit. Did you ever like, you know, run that up the, the chain of command in the hopes that it would get, you know, to the well, ears of Dan? Well, I mean, we, we all, we were always around each other. So we would, you know, around the batting cage or in the clubhouse, you know, we see Dan and like, you know, I'll see Dan, like, Hey Dan. Hey man, you know I mean? What, what I asked him, like, you know, what are we trying to do to, you know, improve? And he's always, you know, always the professional answer, you know, we're always looking to improve ourselves and stuff. But, you know, with Buck, Buck was definitely more straightforward. If you had an idea, just run it to Buck. If you had an idea about something, you know, if you, if you felt a way about something, it didn't matter what it was. Uh, if it was organization, it was something, just, you know, Buck was very good about, um, about getting things done. If that's the proper way to you know really say it, he got things done. If you really you really wanted something done, he got it done. You know, with trades and all that kind of stuff. We're, again, we're in Baltimore, so you know sometimes we didn't have the trade pieces. Like we gave away Hater for Para. I know they beat the shit at them. Oh, <laughs> oh we gave away Brault. We get <laughs> oh. <laughs> You know what I mean? So it's, it's like that, that side, the front office side is completely different. But Para would have, if, 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 if Para played how he was playing in, in Milwaukee, he would have helped our team immensely, like how we got Deaza and how we got McLeod, how they helped us. And we had to give pieces, so we had to give something away from them, not much, but Hater, we gave away Hater. That was a big one. Yeah, it was a big one. But that's just, you know, that's why I want to learn the other side of it because the players play the front, in, in the front office, front offices. I, yeah, you mentioned it in your your Instagram caption, where it's just like either coaching or front office. You, you do look good in a suit, no. by the way. So uh, Thank you know, you. I appreciate that. yeah, <laughs> maybe maybe a camo suit to the front office there. <laughs> Last season on the Cubs, uh, from a fan's perspective, to, to see the core break up, to see all the trades in the July trade deadline, uh, and to see guys like Rizzo leave. Like I think you made your your debut like the day after Rizzo like got shipped out. Like, did you feel any outside pressure stepping into that situation? Uh, to be honest, I didn't care. Uh, it, it was tough because, you know, he was so loved. And, uh, you know, I feel I felt like they were going to hate me regardless because, you know, they had that was their guy. So I was just like, well, it'd be if I stink, they're going to boo me anyway. And if I'm good, maybe uh, maybe they won't hate me as much. So then, like, you know, that first series, they had the we want Rizzo chance. And I would just look over. I'm like, clap, 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 clap. <laughs> But then, uh, you know, a couple of weeks in there, they were cheering for me, too. So I just I just knew it wasn't, you know, the ideal situation. But like I said, I was playing first base for the Chicago Cubs. Nobody was going to take that, you know, happiness from me. Yeah. Like, like, who's this guy? Like, I think you might have just answered it. But like, how long did it take you to get completely comfortable in that situation where, you know, you're, you're comfortable playing every day and you're comfortable with the way that fans view you? Uh I would say a couple of weeks once I had a strung together a couple of good games, but I think the, uh, the Labor Day weekend when we we're on the seven game win streak and, you know, I had a, you know, a couple of game winning hits in a row. I think that's when, uh, this guy doesn't suck too bad. We can, we can hop on, hop on board for at least the rest of the season. Your question about the Reds, the old, uh, bad blood that year. I can't talk about that. Well, yeah, I mean, the Pirates-Reds rivalries, I think it was, was it 2019 when everything kind of happened? That was just a yeah. wild time. Like, could you feel that late in the season, even after everything went down? Like, could you still feel the residual bad blood from those games against the Reds? 
Uh, I wouldn't say me personally. No, I have a lot of friends over there that uh, just from playing together in the past or from Nashville or wherever it may be. But uh, but that was fun. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we had three brawls, I think, in one year or two years. So that was uh, that was fun, and especially you know <clears throat> just the way way they all played out too. Uh, we were actually talking about it a couple nights ago. <clears throat> I think Dietrich's name got brought up. And uh, I mean, some impressive pimp jobs he did. But, dude, I mean, he hit him in the river. So you can't even really be mad. But uh, yeah, it was, uh, that was fun, dude. It was, I remember when uh, the mirror thing, when he kind of went after the dugout. I remember I was up all night, you know, you answering, answering the calls and all that. But it got the blood going. I couldn't go to bed. So it was. Yeah, that's uh, I love that stuff. So it's good. <clears throat> Ryan, did that did that coincide? Were you on that Reds team in late 2019? So I missed I missed the brawls. I I made my debut like right after because the big joke. All right, that year I was owning Indianapolis and in AAA the entire season. So we kind of had some bad blood down there too. They threw at my head, and oh, we yeah. already talked about this on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They threw at my head. They missed. I ducked. Uh, I didn't drop my bat. It hit my bat for a foul ball. Um, and then next pitch, I hit over the center field fence and threw my bat about 20 feet in the air. Um, but you hit uh, your first homer against us too, right? In Pittsburgh, right? And, um, my second one. I, uh, okay. uh, I took our other buddy, uh, Austin Adams, deep in Seattle, actually, for my, for my first one. Nice. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, he threw a fastball. It was a different – he wasn't uh, the old slider guy yet, but he still was the old slider guy. But when you guys – when the, like, last brawl happened, it was the trade deadline, right? Or, like, right around then. So, we just finished a game – I think we were in Toledo. And, you know, we come back in the clubhouse and the game – your guys' game is on. The Reds and Pirates is on. And we see all this happen. But the funniest fucking part was – Puig had just been traded to the, mm-hmm. to the Indians. And so we all have it on our phone, like on Twitter, everything like Puig's not even fucking on the reds anymore. And here he is trying to fight the entire pirates fucking team in a reds uniform. And we're all just sitting there like dying laughing. Like Puig's literally an Indian and he's out here trying to fight everybody in a reds uniform. It was hysterical. Oh, that was great. Yeah. They, they left him on the field or something. Next thing you know, we're brawling. <laughs> Yeah, dude, and now, yeah, now you're with Winker. It's so funny. Can, can you take me through the anatomy of uh, a baseball brawl? Because they're they're very chaotic, like, and obviously you don't want to be the guy that finds himself on the bottom of the pile whenever that happens. So, like, from your <clears> perspective, <throat> if somebody's got a little brawl experience, like, where do you try to position yourself? Do you like to get against the back, like the backdrop <laughs> or whatever? Like, where do you where do you want to be, and where do you not want to be in a baseball brawl? Well, dude, I'm going in. Uh, I know, like. We got we cleared with uh, the Mets last year, and I was in there like it was Stroman and uh, who was it uh, Nagowski for us, and uh, you know McCann gets oh, yeah. I'm going in. I, like, I went in. I'm going in first. It's just when you go in, you got to make sure you got your head on the swivel so you're not catching one, uh, you know, from somebody behind or something. But like one of for example, one of those uh, Reds brawls uh, in Pittsburgh. You know, I'm just kind of stuck in the mix. And then you're just like, now I don't want to get my foot stepped on and freaking knee caught up and everything else. So um, you just got to be careful with it. But I remember Sonny, you know, who I know pretty well from, you know, working out of Vanderbilt and stuff, living in Nashville, he comes in and puts me in a headlock. And I'm like, 
who's got me in a headlock right now? And I completely forget Sonny's on the team. He's in like shades. He's not pitching. He's, you know, he's doing Sonny. And uh, like, because I know Farmer well, because Sally knew uh, a few guys. I'm like, none of them put me in a headlock. Sonny puts me in a headlock. And I'm like, Sonny, if this is all over the internet tomorrow, I'm going to kill you. You know, so couldn't do anything. Just admin. So, um, I don't know, man. I just go in there and pray for the best. No, I'm not. I'm not shying away and hiding. That's for sure. That's I love the little side brawls that break out, where it's like the main scrap is still going on over here, but like 20 feet off to the side, maybe like the bench coaches are like trying to strangle each other. Like that's. I feel like the baseball brawls are like they take so long to break up, just because I feel like there's all these little tiny like things yeah. going on all around. Yeah, usually it's just a bunch of push, pushing and yelling, which is, you know, that's weak. But we had a couple of good ones where some stuff got in, stuff got going. Our uh, bench coach in Pittsburgh, uh, he, he uh, Tom Prince is his name, he backed up catcher for, you know, 13, 14 years. And he bodied Puig. Puig was steamrolling at somebody. And he just, like, O-lineman popped up, stuck him, and shut him down. <laughs> I was like, dang, Love dude. Like, that was a lot of respect. It's, you know, just – Pig's a big dude. But, um, yeah, you never know what you're going to get in those bras. It's fun, though. <laughs> Brian, you ever been in one? That's the truth, dude. Pig is a big dude, so that's that's pretty good. I'll give him that. We had an epic one that was on ESPN when I was in high A. It was bad. It was really bad. We uh, It's still out there somewhere, but um, Luis Castillo – the now with the Reds, it was with the Marlins back then, and he just was killing us. It was like a 10 o'clock, one of those phrase, one of those uh 10 o'clock kids' days that they do in the minor leagues. And uh, Williams. yeah, we were just getting uh, we were getting our asses whooped, and they started drilling people. And yeah, just We'll find that for a clip another day. That's that that one lives in infamy. That was a legit. That was not pushing and shoving. That was like legit. Um, cops were about to walk on the field. People were bleeding. It was it was serious. Of that, Aquino, Aquino was throwing haymakers. It was it was nuts. We had a couple yeah. guys in the hospital. It was, it was it was bad in front of a thousand kids and nobody else. So that was good. So when for you was it in college or? once you got drafted and we're in the minors, when did you kind of realize that you could be pretty fucking good and, and really do this? Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, my freshman year of college, my coach will tell you, he, he's been there now for like 35 years, but when I was there, it was probably like 25 and he'll tell you, I was the first kid in 25 years. He told to go home like that. He, <laughs> he almost cut our, 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 so we, we would scrimmage. Our junior college is weird. Most junior colleges play like a fall schedule against other teams. Our JUCO didn't do that. We just scrimmaged against each other, and our coach would do like rankings amongst our team. And we had 37 guys, 24 pitchers, some of them two-way guys. And the first rankings that came out, I was ranked number 23rd. The 24th pitcher hadn't pitched because he was in the hospital peeing blood from our conditioning test. So I basically took second place in a one-man race there. So it was uh, – Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and uh, he – I remember he called me into his office one day, and he had the pitching coach in there that recruited me. 
And right in front of me, he asked him, he's like, were you drunk when you recruited this kid? Right in front of me. Like my, my junior college coach is ruthless, but he is an unbelievable, like brutally honest. That's all he is. Like it's, it's all out of love though. Like, I don't know how to explain it. Like he, he's the kind of guy that chew your ass and get into your shit. And then three minutes later, you guys are back to shooting the shit and being friends. Like he's just one, he's just got that about him. And, uh, that kind of, that kind of little fire under my ass the second week of rankings and lo and behold, about a month and a half later, I was ranked number six. And then when we came back from, uh, Christmas break, I, I mean, I threw every single day into a brick wall at home inside. And I had this little piece of red tape on this wall at this training facility. They kind of, they trained soccer and they had just a space for me to throw. And I, I threw a bucket of balls. I mean, by the end of Christmas break, all my balls were lopsided, like none other, because I'm just throwing them up against a brick wall. And uh, I probably left, I left school probably throwing like 84, 86. And then I came back and I was 88, 90, would hit 91 my freshman year. And then, um, yeah, from there I kind of knew like, okay, I can, I can maybe get drafted out of here next year, like 90 mile an hour lefty, like that, that'll play. And then my sophomore year, I uh, went to, we have our junior college has a showcase. And again, it's all, it was all D1 focus at this time. Like I want to go D1. I want to go D1. And in my showcase, I threw my bullpen and I hit 93 in it in a bullpen. So it was like, that was awesome. All of a sudden I, I had dang near every D1 school calling, asking, blah, 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 whatever. And then I would say the start of my sophomore spring, um, my first outing, I had, I think it was like 26 scouts in the stands, college and pro. And uh, from there, I kind of knew like, okay, like pro ball's a thing. But uh, I didn't really know how successful I could be in the big leagues until I would say after Tommy John in pro ball. When I, when I came back from Tommy John, uh, I would say like my first two months post Tommy John, like in games actually. So like a year after Tommy John, I was like 88, 90, just not trusting my elbow. And then my pitching coach sat me down and he said, Strom, he's like 88 to 90 mile an hour lefties grow on trees. Like, like if you don't start trusting it, they're going to, they're going to release you and move on. The two days later, I pitched in a game. I hit 97, and I struck out nine of ten batters. It like you can you can ask anyone I played with in the minor leagues; they'll tell you it was like a light switch. Like Strom goes out for an outing, he's 89, 91. Two days later, this kid said "fuck everything," and I didn't throw a fastball under 95, and I punched out nine of the ten batters. The one batter I didn't strike out, I got him 0-2 and hit him with a curveball. Piss me off. <laughs> Take me into those conversations after the season ended. So, like, did Tampa show any interest and in, in having you come back for another season? And when did the possibility of coming to Asia really come into play? Yeah, there was talks actually uh, in the middle of the season when I was in AAA that you know there you know there was some some interest there, uh, either Japan or Korea. So that was kind of in the when it started in the back of my head. Um, but then playing, finishing the year out in Tampa, uh, you know, it was obviously, you know, 
wanted to stick with Tampa, you know, with that group of guys and, you know, they had a bunch of injuries. So they, they weren't, they weren't, there was no guarantee that I would be back uh, with them. So that's when Japan came in the picture and it was an opportunity and, you know, it was one that I was interested in going to Japan and really wanted to have that opportunity and, and take full advantage of it. So that's when we, we decided that that would probably be the best for, for the following season. I love that. I mean, did, what did you know about like, like playing in Japan before you actually went over there? And I'd all ask the same question to Brian, like, did you know like guys who had gone over there in the past or like, what was kind of like your impressions before you actually went over there? I had had a few uh, previous teammates that have, had played in Japan and uh, some had success, some hadn't. And, you know, I tried to rely on those guys and ask as many questions as I could um, to get the kind of a clearer picture of what it was like over there. Um, and some guys had played over there pre-COVID and during COVID. So really tried, uh, you know, try to weigh the, the pros and cons of everything. And, it, you know, ultimately thought it was the best decision for, for me and my wife to go over there in Japan and play. And um, it's been great. You know, not, you know, it's been, you know, what I've, what I've expected from the baseball uh, aspect and, you know, we're getting to, to, uh, to live near Tokyo. It's been really cool. Yeah, I'm the same way. Just talk to talk to everybody. But I think it's just there's just the whole view of baseball, especially in Japan, but in Korea, too. Like it's just changed in recent years. Guys who have come over here and had success and have gone back to the major leagues and had success have kind of like bridged that gap that people thought there used to be between United States and baseball here. And now like, you know, Dietrich will tell you this too, like, especially from a, a pitching standpoint, some of these guys I see here, I'm like, like these guys are fucking nasty. Like they're, they're really good. There's a lot of really good pitchers here and there's some really good hitters too. But I think uh, especially from a, a pitching perspective, like you're facing guys with serious stuff like Dietrich and like, the Japanese guys uh, over here. And it's so as a hitter, man, I, it's the style is different, but I think it's making me better overall because of the, the different things I'm exposed to here. But Dietrich and, and Julianne has been here for most of the time uh, with him. They're a little more adventurous than I've been. He's gone out and seen a bunch of stuff and they, they've done the, the touristy things and things like that. He's got a little more time on his hands than I do um, being a position player, but uh, they've been taking full, full advantage of all that, which I probably should do a little bit more, but, um, yeah, man, it's, it's been everything that I think we've both, we've both expected so far. Big leaguer, Josh, I haven't seen you since I, you know, I think we, I think I said congrats when that happened, but I haven't seen you since you were officially big league, Josh. So that's awesome. Congrats again. Thank you. But we have to. We've done this with, I think, what, he's the third now, J.A.? Nate, Dietrich. I think he's the third Port Charlotte alt-site alum to be on here and talk about it. So we have to do it real fast. I've talked about it a bunch, but what do you remember from the old 2020 COVID alt-site raise? Um, I remember a lot. I remember pretty much – what was it? 60 days of just grinding in the heat. 
<laughs> um, I know we all talked about it. I know my brother talked about it on the podcast too, but like that was honestly some of the most fun I've ever had playing baseball. Despite despite it being a hundred degrees every single day, we went out there. Um, even like even when I was in AAA this year a little bit, I was talking to Brady Williams, who was pretty much our manager there. He was like, "Man, that was still some of the most fun like I've ever had playing baseball." Because how many times can you go out on the field in a professional atmosphere and play shirts and skins like? playing baseball you know and like not to not to mention that everybody out there is is a big leaguer or like will be a big leaguer one day and like we'll be able to look back at it all and say how good that team really like could have been if we would have played a full season but uh yeah that was really cool like that was a unique experience and I know everybody there had fun and we killed it so yeah, you put that pretty good. That was a uh, what a wild time. I hope no one ever has to do something like that again. I hope normal baseball is always being played. But yes, we will. Uh, I'll never forget that for sure. I'll never forget that time. Yeah, that was, that was a lot of a lot of good times. So yeah, that, yeah, that because that yeah. I hadn't met you. You were hurt, right? Spring training before, or you hadn't been to? Yeah, so that was yeah when I first met you. Yeah, that was that was the first time I was back to playing baseball stuff again and probably eight months or so so uh, I mean the whole COVID thing for me was like a little blessing in disguise like I didn't miss any yeah. time at all after my surgery but uh yeah that was the first time we hung out hey this is actually a pretty interesting question because there's been a lot of talk about this do you think you got more like you got better faster from doing that every day and facing those guys than you would have from playing the season wherever. I mean, I don't know if you would have been in high A or double A at that point, or you uh, think it was, it, it held you back because of, because of that. I, th I think it helped tremendously, honestly. Um, one, there was no pressure of going out and trying to post numbers for your season um and two i mean we were facing the best pitching prospects that we had in our org or <laughs> pitchers that were ended up in the big leagues you know the rest of the season on a, a world series roster um so yeah i think it helped a lot yeah dude that was uh you look back at all the pictures that were there now, and it's it's just crazy. Yeah, I mean, what two two of our guys in the rotation right now? Pause um, McClanahan. Pause <laughs> McClanahan. Yeah, I mean, one guy's leading the the league in strikeouts, <laughs> and he's and he's got control of four pitches now. Where at the outside, it was probably just you know fastball slider, and he mixed in a little curveball. His changeup really wasn't there yet, but I mean, yeah. And then Boz just being Shane Boz and then everybody else. So, yeah, I mean, yep. definitely able to uh, compete against the best and really learn how good you're going to be. So you're in Milwaukee right now. And are you staying at the Haunted Fister Hotel right now? Oh, yeah. It's definitely – we're definitely here. There's the ghosts are playing with AC. We're, we're, we're hanging out with a couple of them. I was going back and I was looking at like, I know the Cardinals a couple years ago stayed there and like Carlos Martinez had to like change rooms and he went like, there's just guys that have always have these like Fister hotel, like scary stories. 
like have i mean did you have any kind of encounters with the uh you know some of the some of the ghost friends there at the fester so i think i was telling you guys a little bit um i was playing fortnite last night it's kind of crazy and i was playing with stratton like 1 30 in the morning you know hey we're last game last game okay whatever yeah well you know we'll see what happens and um like five people left, ten people left. We're 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 doing pretty well, and something touches me on the shoulder, and I just told Strat, I was like, "Hey, I think the ghosts are in here. I got to go to bed. It's time for me to get off. You know, I'm we're gonna finish this game." Um, that's probably the first time it's ever happened to me. But last time we were here, I think was the first week of the season, second week of the season, something like that, and um, we had like four guys change rooms. Because at like three in the morning, like one guy's TV would go on and off from channels. So like he turned his TV off, it's like falls asleep, three o'clock in the morning, TV turns on and starts going from like channel seven to like 20 and then would turn off and then turn back on and turn off. And then one guy whose AC wouldn't stop changing levels, go from like 65 to like 80 and then back to like 70 like lights will turn on in the middle of the night. Like last night I woke up this morning and my bed, my bathroom door. Shut. I'm the only one in here. Like I didn't, I didn't shut it last night. Like why would I shut my bathroom door? Um, so there's just weird things that happen at the hotel. It's a part of it. I think, you know, coming here, you know, the ghosts are going to mess with you while you're sleeping, but you know, you just you hang with them. It's a good hotel. They got good coffee. So Brian, any Fister stories? No, I, I don't think anything happened to me while I was there. But when he said, when Will said uh, he was in Milwaukee, it was the first, it was the first thing I remembered. Um, he's giving me the, you know, I'm worried about the hotel I'm in right now after hearing these stories. So hopefully these ghosts don't come after me here. Hopefully they're not. But you got to, you got to, you're going to have to mess with my boy, Josh Van Meter somehow and blame it on some ghosts because he deserves it for sure. So Mickey, I mean, obviously, so, you know, 2010, 2011, did you experiment with the knuckleball when you were drafted and you were playing pro ball or when did that kind of first come into play? Um, I was, I was about 12 or 13 years old when I first started throwing it. Um, saw a special on Tim Wakefield on Fox sports net and, uh, went out the next day, my like little league or Babe Ruth team and, um, just went and, shocked it as hard as I could at my throwing partner and and it was good and um just kind of stuck with it you know last 10 to 15 throws every day just ripping knuckleballs at guys and uh and you know it just kind of took off that way and then you know it's it's so hard to throw it in games growing up because coaches and stuff are like well you know you're not really a knuckleball guy until like the last moment of your career so um, trying to get coaches to buy in on it, it was kind of tough. And, you know, I was, I was still a pretty good pitcher um, without it. So, again, uh, you know, last resort, didn't really need it until you need it. You know, you don't really, you don't really know until you know kind of thing. So just kind of had it in my back pocket. And when I got to pro ball and, or when I got to college and pro ball, you know, I always asked my coaches, like, hey, what do you guys think of a knuckleball? Like, eh, well, you know, we don't really, you don't really need it right now. So, um, like, okay. And like I said, just kind of held on to it and, and, um, 
when I got released by the Rays in 2011, it was just kind of like, you know, I'm an average right-handed pitcher, two decent years at lower level minor leagues. And like, you know, college senior draft, like who's really going to be looking for a guy who's throwing 90 miles an hour as a five foot eight right-handed pitcher, you know? So uh, I just was like, well, maybe this is the opportunity I take to throw the knuckleball and do something different that, uh, that isn't around very often. And at the same time, that that was happening, Ari Dickey was taking off and starting to throw really well. So I thought that might be an opportunity where I was like, hey, maybe teams are start going to look for this, um, you know. So were you – I feel like if I was pitching and all of a sudden I wanted to throw the knuckleball, I feel like that takes balls. Like it's not like a, an easy thing to do. Like I would be nervous, I feel like, trying to go in there and throw the knuckleball. Were you – but it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like you were, you were like ready to, to mix it in and ready to go for it. Yeah. I mean, that's the biggest thing is that you, you pretty much have to commit to it because yeah. it's not just like, you can't really throw it as like a timid pitch because, you know, as you know, it's like, you know, I throw it 75 to 80 miles an hour. Like that's a nice, easy BP fastball if you don't throw right. So um, just really committing to it and, throwing it and that's really the only thing that um I try and tell guys when I have people reach out to me is that it's like you got to commit to it you can't just like throw it in bullpens and then be like okay well maybe I'll throw it once or twice or you know throw it with two strikes it's like no that's not really how it works and you gotta just throw it and either like want to be a knuckleball pitcher or you don't want to be one like it's really hard to be both because eventually you know, they kind of like merge into, you know, if you, with all the adrenaline and pitching and, you know, it kind of merges into the same thing where if you throw like too many fastballs or too many sliders, then it, you know, changes your release point on your knuckleball and your knuckleball has to be perfect every single time. Otherwise it's going to create rotation, which causes less movement and predictability and which is not what you want. You want the unpredictability. So, um, yeah, just the the confidence behind it to throw it, and 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 it is hard because you're you're used to throwing max effort, you know, going up there throwing ninety ninety two max effort, and then it's like okay, I got to dial it back and throw seventy five, and if it doesn't do anything, it's just going to get hammered. So, you know, you're just like, you get to the point where you're like, you throw three nasty ones in a row and get a strikeout, and then you throw one that not very good or or it might even be good and they get lucky and hit it and they hit it for a home run you're like oh well here it is again here it is again here it is again you know so you kind of just got to have that mentality where it's just like forget about it and just let it rip you know is it hard to throw for strikes that was my question (laughs) um it was at first for sure that was like the biggest um biggest obstacle I would say because um, when you don't throw it for strikes, then you're trying to aim it, which makes it even harder to throw for strikes. So, um, but I've gotten to the point now where you kind of know your release point or like uh, little adjustments that you can make with your mechanics or with your release that um, gets you that feel in the strike zone where, you know, like you kind of have like guys have that like kind of get me over curveball where it's like, I'm just going to flip this one in there and kind of steal a strike where. Like I can kind of do that too with a knuckleball where I'm like, okay, I need a strike right here. Three and one throw a strike, you know? So definitely takes a lot of time to, 
to find that release point. But um, but yeah, it is it is very difficult, and obviously that's why you don't see very many guys do it. When when Daniel Hudson made the last out in the World Series in Houston, can you describe what it felt like to realize that you're a World Series champion? It didn't feel like real. Like we were there, Para and me and our BP pitcher Ali Madami, who's now with the Angels. We were up in the hallway at in Minute Maid in the cage because like we were getting ready to to pinch in in case something happened. And all of a sudden, like we hear like a lot of boos and like the feed was Brian. You know this, like the feed in the clubhouse and like in the in the cages and stuff is like so delayed. So. We we're like, what the like, what the hell happened? And and then all of a sudden, they like it came on the TV that how he hit the the go ahead homer off the foul pole, and uh, so we we put our bats down, we rushed down to the dugout, and we stayed down there, and like to see, it felt like that the bottom of the ninth inning took an hour and a half because it it was, it felt like it was in slow motion the whole like the whole inning because everybody was like so anxious and so excited that like we're like three outs away from being like champions and that final out that swing and miss and like seeing him and Gomes hands up in the air that everybody's chucking their gloves everybody's running out of the dugout like it 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 didn't feel real and it still doesn't feel real like to say that like I was in that dugout I was like celebrating on that field with like my brothers as champions and like they, it's, it it was just such a special moment i love that and then you know and then the parade and the caps game after it just seems like that was like a non-stop non-stop like week-long party you guys had yeah it was uh the the plane ride back was epic uh i think i think we sang we are the champions the last like hour and a half of the the plane ride uh, we had our families on there, uh, and then we landed in D.C. to probably shoot at least 10,000 fan, like fans at the airport, like greenness, like outside of the tarmac, like as the buses drove away. And, uh, yeah, and then you like the Caps games, like being introduced and being down there celebrating with them they celebrated with us a year before when they won the the stanley cup so that was uh that was a pretty cool moment and then i have pictures on my phone of like when we came around pennsylvania avenue like to see like how packed that place was and uh people hanging from trees people like cars like backed up like the on-ramps to the highway like people standing on top of their cars like it, and and then like every building down Pennsylvania Avenue had at least five or six snipers on the rooftop to like like make sure that like everything like stayed in check and like that was like uh, just seeing everything that was unfolding that day like was was really really cool and 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 definitely something that I'm glad that I have on tape that I can go back and watch with my family over and over and over again. Man, there's all kinds of stuff he. He actually lost my World Series ring, and and he's actually told this story on uh, on Major League Baseball Network. I was there on set with him one time with Chris Rose, and and uh, we were at we were at, at a football event, uh, Super Bowl party that my agent was throwing in New Orleans. It was like Hawaiian Tropic deal. It was 
you know, this fun deal. And, and uh, he was like, can I wear your Royal Series ring? And I'm like, yeah, you can wear it. And he was just wanting to, I don't know why he was wanting to wear the dang thing, but he wanted to wear it. This was back wanted in 97. I was, I'd gotten the ring. I'd, I'd only got a couple of bats in the year, but I did have a ring. And so this was like 2001 and we're all coming out of this football uh, Super Bowl party in, in New Orleans at Harris Casino. And it's like, I think Matt Hasselback, Joey Harrington, Bledsoe, Tim Couch, me, Millar, there's a bunch of us walking out and we're all talking about, it's like two or 3 a.m. And, you know, we've been having fun and, and <laughs> we're all talking about who's the best athlete of all. And I'm like, of all of us in the group, we're, I don't know why, how we got on this, but we're like, and so I go, guys, I'm an athlete, you know, I'm like, y'all, y'all won Super Bowls and Bledsoe was there, you know, he's six, six, he's a stud, first hundred million dollar guy. I'm like, dude, y'all ain't worth the darn. I'm the best athlete. Uh, you know, I, I played two sports. And I said, show him my World Series ring because we're at a football deal. And Millar looks down. He didn't have the ring on his finger. And I had just given it to him. And I'm like, what, what is going on? And Kevin sprints to the bathroom at Harris. And he had washed his hand. He went to wash his hands and set the ring down on the counter to wash it because the ring was a little big. And he left it. He left it in there and didn't even realize he walked away from my ring. He gets back over there and, you know, he runs back over there and I'm like, oh my God, he lost my World Series ring. He's, he's red or the tomato. And he goes, he goes, man, I don't know what to tell you. I was washing my hands in the bathroom. I lost your World Series ring. I'm like, no way, bro. So I, he lost my World Series ring. It's a horror story, but it's a, it was pretty funny at the time because I never really wore the thing. And then when he won it in 2004, you know, I, I was there actually uh, at Fenway for the first couple of games, but I called him and I go, dude, you owe me your ring. You know that, right? And he's like, oh, my God. You know, anyways, I, I didn't do that to him. But but at the same time, um, he did lose my World Series ring, which is a crazy story. And we've never seen it since. We've never seen it. <laughs> that, that, I wasn't expecting it to end that way. I thought he was going to I thought he was going to find it. <laughs> yeah. No, he never found it. He, he, we, oh, we my still- God. This was 20 years ago. We're like, it'll never, it'll never show up. So I've got to get the thing re- remade, but I haven't done it yet because I just never wore it. But now that my kids are getting older, I kind of want to get the dang ring back. So I got to call the Marlins deal with getting a new ring back. But um, anyways, it was, it was a quite a, quite a night. I was like, no, oh, let's just go to Bourbon Street, guys. Let's go. So I didn't want it tonight to ruin, but, but he was, he felt so bad. He's still sick to his stomach. So if you ever, if you ever, do a podcast interview with Kevin, bring that story up and, and get after his ass a little bit. <laughs> so somebody, somebody at Harris Casino that night, it got real lucky and it's just quietly walking around with the Marlins world series rig right now. Right. I'm, we've never That's seen crazy. it. That's crazy. I've never said they it on eBay or anything. I've never heard. Oh my God. Yeah. it's That's, crazy. that's crazy. That's a, that's a great st- – I mean, aside from actually losing the ring, the rest of that's a great story. <laughs> that's, that's a great story, though. <laughs> it's great. I got a bunch of them with Kevin, but that, that's one is uh, one for the ages, that's for sure. But there is hope, though. So there is a possibility that, like, working with the Marlins, they can have, like, a like a replica or, like, they can have another one they, made because I feel like that's a big yeah, deal. They, they can redo it. I, I – uh, you know, they didn't insure those rings. Like I didn't, I didn't even think about getting it insured. So I've got to go back through and buy the thing and go get sized and all that stuff. And I was living in California. I never really, you know, I wasn't a starter on the team. Uh, I was a rookie kind of coming up. So I, you know, I, 
I didn't even really wear it that much. So I, I but now I think I would, you know, um, getting older and my kid, I'd love for them to see it too. So I, I'm going to get the thing done. Oh, so I wanted to jump ahead and we touched on this earlier. Like, can you tell the story of how you signed with the Reds as an undrafted free agent instead of being drafted? It's, it's one of the most incredible things I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, like the, you want the full thing? You want yeah. the, all right. So yeah. So my red, that red shirt sophomore year, that year, uh, like I was saying, I had a good fall. Um, and so when scouts come to fall scrimmages and stuff, they get a roster printout, right? And they get a, everyone, everyone on that field, their Jersey number. So they know who they're looking at and stuff like that. Um, on that printout roster, I guess it had me listed as a sophomore, just a straight up sophomore. No, no red shirt. Cause normally you would say red shirt, you're RS dash SO red shirt sophomore. Um, on these handouts, it just had sophomore. And that was, that was kind of all they saw. So, you know, I don't know if they were watching. It was like, okay, well, next year's draft, or we can go, we can, we can look towards next year's draft or whatever it may be. And then fast forward to the season. You know, I had a, had a good season, uh, my redshirt junior year or sophomore year. And uh, I remember the day before the draft, or like the week of the draft, we were playing in the Mountain West tournament. I get a phone call and, um, it was the Rays area scout who I had seen for three years already. Like he was very, he was around our fall scrimmages a lot at our games, a lot, you know, the Rays drafted a lot of Nevada guys, uh, QB Myers, Miles Mastroboni, Justin Bridgman. Like they drafted a lot of Nevada guys. So he calls me and he's like, Hey, uh, we're thinking about drafting you this week in the draft. You know, what, what would you say? And I told him on the phone, I said, oh, man, that would be awesome, but, like, I'm not draft eligible. And on the phone, on the phone, he, 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 on the phone, and he goes, yeah, no, this is your third year in Nevada, right? I was like, yeah, well, I'm a junior, but technically baseball-wise, I'm a redshirt sophomore. And he's like, well, that, that doesn't matter. Like, as long as you've been in Nevada for three years, you're draft eligible. And so that was news to me the week of the draft. This whole year I'd gone about it like I wasn't, I wasn't even because I wasn't 21. I was a redshirt sophomore. So I thought you had to be at least a junior eligibility wise in baseball to be drafted. So I didn't think I qualified until he told me that the week of the draft. And so I ended up, you know, I told him, Hey, I appreciate it. Thank you for making me aware, but that's just really sudden. And I don't, I don't, I don't even have a, an agent. I didn't even talk to my parents about being drafted. I was planning on going to the Northwoods, just playing summer ball. That was it. So I told him, like, thank you, but no thanks. I'll wait till next year. Um, fast forward to the Northwoods. I'm in the Northwoods for, like, two weeks, and I get invited to Team USA, the collegiate national team. Because um, my coach, TJ Bruce, had connections with the, the college national coach at that time, Coach Horton from Oregon. They had, like, ties from before, so – he kind of just asked him as like a, a, a favor. Hey, just for exposure, can you bring him to the tryouts? Not even like to make the team, just to be at the tryouts for a week in LA. So I got invited to the tryouts um, and then end up doing well there and impressed, impressed the staff there and actually earned a spot on the team. 
um, with the collegiate national team and started every game for them in left field um, during that one month stretch where we played. But that one week at the tryouts, every team and their scouts were there looking at the guys for next year's draft. And uh, I don't know how it came about. I don't know what was said, but at that time was found that it was kind of found out that I could have been drafted and that I'm draft eligible. So at that time, the draft had already happened. Now they're signing free agents out of out of college or seniors or uh, seniors out of college or just free agents. And um, I get a call from Adam Karen, who's my agent still to this day. He calls me and he goes, hey, um, we want to meet. They're based out of the Bay Area where I'm from in California. And I was in L.A. And they said, hey, we want to meet up. So they fly down to L.A. And uh, we kind of meet up. And, and I told him, like, hey, yeah, like, that'd be awesome. I'd love for you guys to represent me. And boom, right into the fire. He starts getting emails, phone calls about what would I, would I be willing to sign right now? You know, what, what, what am I looking for number-wise? So in my head, I'm like, you know, I got to decide. what Do I want to go back to school? What do I want to do? And and uh, so I decided on number, and I'm like, okay, like if it hits this number, I'm gonna sign. But there's no way it hits that number. So we're kind of going through and getting emails and phone calls, and uh, now I'm going overseas to Taiwan. That's where we start for Team USA. So he goes, you know, I'll send you emails and I'll keep you in the loop of everything happening here. And so we go in Taiwan, and. I'm waking up every morning at seven or seven or eight a.m. to emails from him with my parents, McDonald. Like, here's where we're at. Here's what's happening. These teams are offering him this much. So it's starting to get close to my number. And every day there's more teams coming in. And so it's kind of like overwhelming. You know, I'm I can't talk to anyone. I don't have phone service in Taiwan. I can text and email and FaceTime, but that's about it. And so uh my coach at Nevada FaceTimes me. And he knows what's going on. So, you know, he's now, now I got him doing everything he can to bring me back to school, come back to school for another year, along with other teams hopping on to get me to sign. Um, and so it just kind of turned into like a, a bidding war in type of like, you know, who had money left over from the draft is basically what they're going for. Like after they've signed all their guys in the draft, who has, leftover money so it comes down to maybe four or five teams where it's all in the same vicinity of what i signed for and at that point it had surpassed what i said you know would take for me to sign and then at that point you know i sat down with my agent and we just kind of evaluated everyone's draft scenarios everyone's minor leagues of like who has outfielders like developed outfielders who are going to be moving up soon where guys stand um, and so we kind of just like looked at, looked at all the possible options and, you know, we decided that the Reds would be the best fit for me. How big of a difference was that for you? Because, you know, a couple years prior to that we talked about how, you know, you could have gone the JUCO route, the colleges weren't really that interested in you. And then just a few short later, years later, your phone's blowing up and teams are like clamoring to get at you. Is that, was that weird for you? Oh, it was wild. It was, it was wild. You know, my freshman year of college, I, 
barely made the team and I had 16 at bats and 18 appearances as a pinch runner and then come back my sophomore year and I you know I was I was redshirted um basically told you know I wasn't going to play at all on that team my sophomore year which you know that team ended up going 41 and 15 like it was insane that team was incredible so like you know, I was I was glad I registered to save a year of eligibility, but um, it's always tough hearing like, "Hey, man, you're you're not gonna you're not gonna play much." You know, these guys are gonna play in front of you. Um, so that was tough. And then, yeah, and then the next year, a year later, and I'm having these conversations with with these teams of possibly signing as a free agent and then going right to play pro ball. You know, I go Taiwan to Japan to Cuba. And then, okay, now you go back home. We'll give you a week to go pack your things up in Nevada. And then we want you in Billings, Montana on August 4th. So, I mean, it happened quick, but, you know, it was, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. And Billings, what a place that is the best. Uh, I'm sure you get asked about this all the time, but like growing up in the spotlight, like what was that like? And like, did you feel any extra pressure to perform? You know, I'd love to just say, oh, no, no pressure to perform at all. But the reality was there, it was there, absolutely. And, you know, as a kid, I really didn't understand the magnitude of uh, what my dad had accomplished and um, and even like how people viewed my family. And because I, I just never as a kid, you're you're also still learning. And when my dad was retiring, I was eight years old and um you know, when everyone was making, you know, people were sad or excited or wanted to go and see him play. I didn't get it. Uh, you know, I, I shouldn't say I didn't get it, but I really just thought of that as my dad's job. So I didn't look at it any other way. And then as I got older, I realized, especially growing up in Baltimore, you understand then the, the magnitude of the situation and I got into high school pressure started to escalate. And then there's feeling a lot more of the comparisons and as a teenager, and I already you already have other things kind of going on in your life, um, where you're I was probably moody and and I oh, I know I was moody and had weird sleeping habits and you know things could could uh, seem to trigger me very very quickly. So I just I was I couldn't grasp my or grasp the concept of why uh, why there was so many expectations. And and then for me, I wanted to prove to people that I was a quote unquote, I was a, a Ripken that I could live up to the, to the expectation and family name. And that was exhausting. And I, no matter what, through the whole time, I've always wanted to be Ryan and I love what my family did. I, I just, I, um, kudos to them, hats off, you know, give them a high five, but I want people to know me and I want to, if you like me or you don't like me, or you think I'm a good player or not, you know, view that as me. And, and don't try to compare uh, the names. But when I got into pro ball, I still had tr struggles with that too. Um, and honestly, until I got released with the Nationals and I had to reset, and I had a lot of injuries to start my career, was I finally able to get into a different mindset and kind of let things go, stay in the moment, and really put things aside. And I've definitely come to peace with all that stuff. And I never, I just want to point this out, I never was trying to be um, and like anyone in my family in that regard, you know, 
you, I know I wanted to follow the footsteps to play because I love the sport, but I didn't do it because I um, wanted to be, uh, to, to be better or be exactly like my dad. I wanted to make my own path and see where that took me. And this is where it took me. This is where it ended. It's not the way I wanted it to finish, but I'm proud of the journey and I'm proud of the process because um, everyone has a different story. And now I'm excited to continue what that chapter is. And, and hopefully uh, people can see the sides of me as a player, uh, but I hope more so that they can remember me more as the person. What's your general approach when you're at the yeah. plate? Yeah, I, man, when I'm up there, I've always, I've always, I, I try to think about what it is, uh, but I always love, I've always just loved fastballs. I have ever since 90, it's like, I used to take, you know, take pitches, even if they were right down the middle, if it wasn't a fastball, uh, you know, I, I didn't really want to swing. And obviously as the talent gets better, they can spot that thing three times. So my approach has always been, even when I got to pro ball, man, I'm, I, I want his, I want his hardest, his hardest pitch. I want to hit that. And, you know, a lot of guys, um, a lot of guys like that and have a lot of confidence. Think about it. The fastball is the first pitch any pitcher ever threw in their life. So whether or not they have a lot of control on it or not, they're going to, they're going to want to throw it. You know, you might have the exception. You're going to have the exception. That's, you know, mainly change up or may, mainly slider sometimes, but fastball. And for me, it's all, I, I think go up there and sit fastball, middle, middle um, and react off of that. You know, it's a react, it's a reacting game as much as you want to think, you know, when you maybe when you get back to the dugout and, and think, you know, man, if I could just go up there and think, you know, when I, when I, right when I see the seams out of his hand and see the curveball and do this and do that, it's like, no, nah, dude, you, you, it's not like that. And you know that it's like, it's, it's just what your body reacts to. So um, when I, for me, it's just helped when I think, oh my God, the, his, his fastest pitch is coming every pitch right where I want it, be ready. It just helps me react to that stuff. It, it helps me see the spin better out of the hand. Um, it helps me not to chase, you know, low in the zone, uh, you know, with the soft stuff. Um, so that, that's what I do, man. Fastball, middle, middle. Um, that's, that's the, the standard approach. Are you a, simple, as, <clears throat> simple as can be. Are you a, are you a swing down guy or are you just not even thinking about anything like that? Well, I think naturally, Naturally, yeah. I think I'm more of a – I got kind of more of a flat swing, and I think that's the reason for more of the low-line drive, you know, sort of balls that I get. I don't hit a lot of really sky-high fly balls. Um, but I think that's just been for me. It's like speed's always been a part of my game. So not wanting to change that too much, you know, and give up extra swing and miss for, for contact. You know what I mean? Like there's so many times, especially in pro ball, but throughout my whole life where I was getting infield hits and I grew up, I grew up being taught, you know, it hits a hit, man, you know, take them, take them when they come. So I was never really interested in walking back to the dugout after striking out, man. I always felt embarrassed doing that. And 
it's it's going to happen. It happened to me a hundred times this year, this past year, and a hundred times the year before. It's going to happen, but just that mentality of like, look, I want to keep that ball in play. It's, it's probably kept that flatter swing for me. Yeah, that's interesting because we're both we both hit lefty. You throw lefty though, right? Yep, I do, man. Yeah, so yep. it's uh, you know, that top hand being dominant. I feel like that that ends up happening for a lot of a lot of guys. But you said. What's the what's the biggest adjustment you've had to make so far in pro ball in general? That that cutting down the leg kick, or is it something else? That that for sure uh, was probably one of the it was the biggest uh, physical kind of adjustment that I was having to make. Uh, you know, just for consistency, it was that was the main thing for me. I wanted to be consistent. I wanted to play every day and be be consistent with it, and you know not just go over for four one day and, you know, be the spotty guy. No, I want to be the consistent guy. So, you know, that's what I was focusing on. But I would say the biggest out of all of them would just the mental endurance, you know, part of it, the long, long season and, and being able to like mentally, you can, you can be, you know, perfect up there, look perfect, swing perfect, see the ball perfect. And then you still got days when you're over four, over bad day, make an error in the field, whatever it is, not locked in. And, you know, that's the that's the mental side of it. So I, I noticed like when I noticed there were some parts of the year where I would start off games slow and be like I wouldn't even be locked in up, up to bat and I'd start games like 0 for 2 and then I'd finish games strong. And I'm like, how silly does that sound to me, man? Like I could be doing that same thing to start off the game. All it is is me, you know, halfway through the game realizing like, oh, shit, you know, like I'm not I'm not locked in like we got to we got to do something about it here. And then, you know, so just that mental endurance, man, just, just being able to be locked in each and every day, allowing myself to even make the adjustment of a toe tap or something like that. And if you're not ready that day for it, then there's no way you're going to be able to advance your game, I think. So that was the biggest thing. And two last quick things before we get out of here this week. Uh, we wanted to give a shout out to a friend of the podcast, Actions Over Words. It is an apparel brand with the mission of encouraging people to use their actions instead of their words. They also donate $5 of every sale to different charities around the world. So check them out over at actionsoverwordsapparel.com and use the code N4L for 10% off of your entire order of tees, hats, hoodies, and more. And finally, check out the Not For Long Media family of podcasts. Tons of great content for you to check out, including The Colin Thompson Show and our other shows, Two Girls, One League, and Ah Geez with Harry Mays and Jason Martinez. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you all next week. And before we get out of here, a special thank you to the band Stick Figure for allowing us to use today's intro and outro music. You can